you know, you're not, it's always tough as you're preaching because you, you don't really know, you know, what lands and what doesn't and, and how, or if you've impacted people or not. But this, this morning was exceptionally difficult because after we got through, you know, here I am, um, I'm, I'm preaching on worship as suffering and I get done and Rusty comes up to me and he looks at me and he goes, wow. I did a whole lot of worshiping during your sermon today. <laughs> so, uh, so um, I don't. I mean, what do you say about that? Um, so, thanks, Rusty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, we're going to continue on as we have done in in the past several weeks as we've gone through this study. We spent some time in in the sermon, and we actually. Unfortunately, just the way it works is is that you you do a lot of sitting and listening, hopefully listening, but not a whole lot of dialogue. But then, as we enter into our class time, uh, is a little more open, uh, and we're going to encourage some discussion, and we're going to talk about this idea of suffering, uh, and so we're going to get into that in just a minute. Uh, but first, uh, what I want to do is I want us to go to Second Samuel chapter twenty four. So, 2 Samuel chapter 24, we actually spent a little bit of time uh, in 1 Samuel on Wednesday night. We were talking about his mom, Hannah, and the suffering that she endured and the worship that she participated in uh, as she was a, uh, a, a wife uh, who had a husband who had another wife uh, and some of the struggle that they had with uh, Panina. Uh, and and some of the the jockeying that went on, uh, so now we're going to fast forward to the uh, towards the very end, and we're going to find ourselves talking about uh, David. Uh, and and again, we're going to talk about remember that worship is 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 suffering, and it's putting faith in God. Okay, it's trusting that He's going to take care uh, of everything. And so there's kind of two stories in Second Samuel 24. And I'm, I'm really more focused in on the second one, but the first one is such a good story, and it does talk about uh, the fact that we were called to have faith in God. I just wanted to, to include that in our class time, uh, and so hopefully we won't spend too much time on the first story with that we don't get to the second, so I probably should just stop talking and, and start reading. So this is 2 Samuel chapter 24 says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel uh, and Judah. And so now uh, King David uh, is going to be taking a census. He's going to be counting the people. Why do you count the people? Why, why would you take a census? Why would this have been important at all? So is this like, like, like a government program? Like we need to figure out like how many mouths to feed? You know, what? why would he count? Why would it be a big deal to count? Do what? Taxes. Okay. The revenue that's being brought in. Okay. Uh, and then what's the other thing? What, what else happens? Why else would a king want to count uh, how many people he has? That's right. His, his fighters. He wants to know how many can pick up a sword and swing it if need be. 
And so there's a couple of things when you think about the census. The first, of course, is what kind of income am I getting? How are we going to be able to maintain? Do we have enough? Okay. And then on the, the, the other, the flip side is, do we have, again, enough fighters in case we have to go to battle? Okay. Why, why does this bother God so much? Okay, so you need to trust him. And we can go back to the story of Gideon. You know, Gideon has all these men, 32,000 at his disposal. Again, he's still outnumbered four to one. Uh, but still he's thinking, okay, I can do this. And God says, yeah, that's the problem. You think you can do this. I want you to get up to a point where you say, I cannot do this. And that's exactly where God wants you to be. But this is not where King David and Israel and Judah are at this point. They're thinking about what is our might? You know, what is our financial backing? What is our, our military powers? What can we do if we need to go off to, to war and end up in battle? I'm, Surely that wouldn't happen. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many that there are. So in case something bad happens, everything's going to be okay. Now I'm not trying to, to pick on Guy uh, or any other people who are involved in, in insurance. Okay, I have insurance. I, I have to have it to, to drive a vehicle unless I want to ride my bike around town. Okay, so I'm required to have insurance. I think insurance is a good thing. I'm not saying you should skip out on insurance. And if you need to go get good insurance, I would say talk to Guy, but I don't think he even works in that department anyway. So, But insurance is this beautiful thing that allows us to trust not in God's provisions, but it's just another one of those things where we say, oh man, if something bad happens, it's okay. What? I've got insurance. And I've said that to my kids before. You know, as I've, you know, kind of, you know, I had to like cross my fingers and grip my teeth. And my son calls and says, Dad, I ran into something again. <laughs> and my response is, we've got insurance. What I really want to say is, I'm going to kill you. Stop hitting things, especially ones that are big and don't move. I, I don't know what the deal was. He went through a phase there where like if it was big and stationary, he was going to trade paint. Right? And I, I've got insurance. Everything is okay. I, I'm having trouble. Finances aren't going well. It's okay. I've, I've got an emergency fund. Don't worry about it. I've got a backup plan. I've got retirement. I've got another job. I've got this. And we start giving all these reasons why everything is going to be okay. And God says, stop trying to look at other things and other people to protect and to provide for you. Now again, I'm not here saying get rid of your insurance and go go spend all your retirement plan and say, woo! But what I am saying is that we need to trust in God. And when we insulate ourselves so much and, and provide all these safety nets, all of a sudden it's hard to really worship because it doesn't really cost anything. 
And so here we go. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my Lord and the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? Joab realized where this is going. This is not a good thing. And yet, listen to what uh, David says. The king's word, however, overruled Joab. That's how it works with the king, doesn't it? Um, the word of the Lord overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near uh, Aror, south of the town of, in the gorge, and then went through Gad on to Jazir. They went to Gilead in the region of Titham Hadshi, and then on to Dan John and around towards Sidian. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba and the Negev of Judah. And so now you've once again got to listen to me butcher all the pronunciations of those words. The point is, they sound a little bit like a Johnny Cash song. Like they've, they've been everywhere. They, they go to all the different places. They're counting the men. They make sure they get them run. Okay, now listen to this. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem. And at the end of nine months, at the end of nine months and 20 days, it took a long time for them to do a count. Okay. Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, there were 500,000. So they numbered 1.3 million soldiers who could, who could handle a, a sword, a wield a sword, and they could fight and defend. Or maybe in some cases to attack. And then all of a sudden we have verse 10. It's like what David wanted, he got, and once he got it, he realized he didn't really want it. Listen to this. David was conscious stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So what's going on here? Some, give me a summary of what's happened and, and, and why. He realized that his good idea was a sin. Fortunately, that's never happened to any of us before. But for David, it was. Even a man after God's own heart, he took for granted that he had the, the, the Lord as his fortress. And, and again, I mean, you think about this. Think about this, the fact that this is, this is the man who wrote so many different psalms who talks about the Lord as his refuge and his strength. Right, And yet here he is, he's not trusting in God. It's, it's one thing to sit there and sing songs about trusting in God on Sunday. It's another thing on Monday to trust in God when things aren't going great. What do I do now? What happens when all, this, all of a sudden things aren't as good as we thought they would be? And our immediate reaction is, well, let me check on insurance. Let me, let me find out if I have an emergency fund. Let, let me make a phone call. Let me see if I can scramble around and fix this. You see, this is when David realized, I wasn't really trusting in God. 
that I got what I wanted and then I realized that what I wanted wasn't something that was bringing glory to God. It was all about, can I handle this myself? We're in a tough spot, aren't we? Because there's this one side of us that, that says understanding from scripture that we're called to trust in God that we're to lean on God he is going to be our fortress and our right hand he's our rear guard we can totally trust him but the other side of us says hey we need to be strong and we need to be tough and probably everybody in here has been told by your your parents either your mom or your dad you need to pick up yourself by your bootstraps and you need to just be tough and grit it out and hang in there Like, I can do this. I can do this. That's what's drilled into us. we got to be strong, especially for those of us uh, who are men. We were taught that, oh, you can't ever um, uh, ask for help. It's why there are millions of men every year who waste millions of hours driving around in a town because they're too good to stop and ask for directions. I can't do it. I've got to be strong. Do you think David felt strength? When he got that number? Do you think any number reported back to him would have validated his request? 1.3 million men. And that's when he realized it was all about what I was doing. It's all about what I have. How I can achieve it. Not about trusting in God. And again, I'm just thankful that that no one else in here has had to deal with that. But how often is our, our first response to tragedy or even just a crisis of some kind to say, how can I fix this? How can I handle it? How can I be tough and strong? And God says, you don't have to be. I'm the one who said that I would be there for you, that I would protect you. That I'm going to give you words and strength and literally the spirit of Jesus to live inside you. And that's what's going to sustain you. And yet here we have David who realizes this. And so now there's going to be consequences. There are consequences uh, for sin. In this case, it's very odd that God is actually going to have some dialogue with David and say, here's your options. Listen to this. I don't know if any of you may remember this. It says, before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Kind of sounds like what a parent might say to a child. Okay, you're in trouble, and you get to pick what happens. And so listen to this. It says, So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of uh, famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. And so God says, okay, you're going to be punished for this. And he says, here's what's going to happen. Either you can have three years of famine, 
You can have three months of fleeing from your enemies, or you can have three days of plagues in your or in your land. So let's just kind of stop for just a minute and think about this. Don't read ahead. And if you do, don't cheat and use David's answer just because it was his. I want you to think of your own. What would you what would you rather have happen? Three days? Why is that? Just just put your head down, get it over with. Okay. Uh, you take a spanking over a grounding any day. Because the spanking is temporary. Grounding is forever. I've been in here forever. It's been three hours. I'm still in here. You have the rest of the week. And I can't make it. I mean, I wouldn't know. I've never heard any of my kids say that. But if they did, it would have sounded something like that. Would anybody choose something different? Would anybody say, you know what? I would rather have the three years of famine. No? And seven years of famine? Did I read that wrong? Okay, three years of three years of famine or three three months of fleeing. I mean, if you need a good workout program, Forrest Gump it. You could three months of just I I was running. You could just do that. Now David's going to pick um, obviously the well I say obviously I mean it seems obvious to the rest of us he's going to pick the three days of plague uh, and why does he do this well I think one of them is kind of like Becky saying is I just want to get it over with but but listen to his reasoning I think it's really interesting David said to God I am in deep distress let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great but do not let me fall into the hands of men so he says hey I'm going to let you take care of it, and I'm just hoping that your mercy is great enough because I think it's going to be way better than if I'm running from my enemy or we're trying to figure out how we're going to get food for the next three years. He says, let's, let's just do this. So the Lord sent a great plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to uh, Beersheba died. Okay, so uh, this this actually uses uh, the the word um, seventy of the people from Dan Dan to Beersheba die. Remember, just a minute ago they took a count, right? And how many how many were there? One point three. Those were the the fighting men. So I don't I don't know. Probably a good estimate might be to probably triple that number, maybe even quadruple it. Really, to be safe. You, you want to quadruple it. But even if we say, let's just triple it because you have to include women, you have to include children, you have to uh, include the elderly who are not able to fight. And so we're looking at uh, really between four and five million people. Okay. And so ultimately, 70,000 of them are going to die. But listen to this. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, what? The Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Even God did what David hoped that he would do. That after 70 thousand of approximately five million had died, God said, whoa, this is enough. 
even though the sin of David was great and it affected all the people as they went around for nearly 10 months counting. And they knew why a count was happening. Counts, censuses happened at that time to figure out are we big enough and bad enough to go out and fight. And so when people hear this, they're thinking, well, we might be going to war. And this, the sin of David affected all of the people. And as God is, is meting out punishment for that sin, He says, this is enough. What's an appropriate number out of five million? I mean, you, you could argue, well, well, that's not even one percent. Right? I mean... I, do, do we really stop then? Wait, that would have been just 1.2%. Yeah, 1.2%. Is that enough? But then I guess you could look at it on the other hand and say, well, but one person, one person ended up causing pain for 70,000 people. In fact, that one person who was warned by other people Joab included, who said, don't have anything to do with this. He says, I'm going to do it anyway. He was told not to do it. People argued with the king. But David said, I'm going to do it. And as a result, 70,000 people. When David saw the angel was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. Finally, David steps up as a leader and realizes that his actions were having consequences on the people he was listening and he was watching over. And I think this is a beautiful thing when he says, you know what, they're just sheep. It's, it's not their fault. Let me, let me take the pain for him. And now we're going to get the second part of the story, which I absolutely love. And Lance alluded to earlier, he actually preached on this years and years ago, not long after I first got here, and I always loved this. And I thought sometime years later, when everybody has probably forgotten about it, I'm going to bring this back up again because I love this story. And don't, don't look at me and judge me like that. Okay, Jesus had the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. It was the same one. He did it at different times. And if he can get away with it, I'm just going to hope that I can too. Except I'm using somebody else's material. Second story. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aruna looked up and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. So now we have him. This is the Hebrew word for worshiping. He goes out there. He bows down. He, he worships David. And Aruna said, Why has my lord come to the king? Uh, why has my lord the king come to this servant? So let's just step back again. What, is, what does Aruna think that's going on here? Yes, I mean, just you're, you're sitting there, you're having your cup of coffee, all of a sudden you see the king show up. 
Remember when we talk about king, I mean, you can imagine what the entourage would have looked like. I mean, it would have been some, similar to, to the, the president rolling up to your um, driveway. I mean, the, the limos, the little mini flags on the antennas, the Secret Service are going to get out. There's going to be um, men there's going, with earpieces. They're going to be surrounding it. Can you imagine? Like waking up on a Saturday morning, you're looking at the newspaper, you're drinking your cup of coffee, and all of a sudden you see this coming out and there's, there's 40 cars lining the street in front of your house and there's a big limo right in front of your door and the door opens and out pops the president. Okay, what are you thinking? Uh-oh. Don't anybody say, did I vote for this guy? I don't, this is, I don't want to get political here. That's not the point. The point is, this is King David. And for the most part, people love King David. Uriah was faithful to him. He probably would have liked him a little less if he knew ultimately what he had done. But nonetheless, most people really liked King David. You know, they sang songs about him. He, he wrote psalms to God that, that later would be sung for thousands of years uh, in worship services, right? This is this is the mighty man, King David, and he comes comes strolling up. And if I'm uh, Aruna, I'm like this. This can only end in disaster, honey. Did did we pay our taxes? I mean, kings could do whatever they wanted. I mean, do you remember the trouble the Christians got in in the first century? Nero decided that he wanted a little more land that he than he had, and so what did he decide to do? Burn Rome. Well, then all of a sudden it looked really bad that that the land he was trying to get but couldn't get because people were living there. All of a sudden, it just happened to be blazing, right? And so, what does what does Nero do? He blames the Christians. These, this crazy new group of people, they're the ones who did it. And he started doing just the most terrible, awful things. Dipping them in tar, setting them on fire, impaling them, putting them in, in the arena to be torn to pieces, stretched apart, crucified, however he could do it. I mean, that's a king could do what he wanted to do. King David rolls up. So Aruna's like, well, there went my land. I mean, he has no idea what's going to happen. I mean, David, was, David wasn't above taking people's wives and then killing them after he did it. So who knows what's going to happen, right? So he comes and he falls at his feet. He says, why has the Lord come to his... Uh, to his servant, he says, to buy your threshing floor, uh, David said, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. And so this is where the angel of the Lord uh, had stopped there. And so David now wants to build an altar. And, and here's the story that uh, Lance alluded to. Aruna said to the king, let my lord the king take whatever he pleases him and offer it up. Uh, here are the oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing, threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. O king, Ar o king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. 
And so all of a sudden, this works out really great. Because now David's like, oh, wow, I, I get to give a gift, and he's offering it to me. So it's not going to cost me anything. This is great for the books. This will work out just fine. But listen to what he says. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that what? That cost me nothing. And I just find that to be the most beautiful, profound phrase. David struck with a guilty conscience for what he has done. He watched 70,000 of his own people die because of his sin. He's heartbroken. He goes there to offer worship to God. And the guy says, hey, it's okay. I've got this taken care of. I've got burnt offerings. I've got wood over there for the fire. You don't have to do anything. And David says, I will not sacrifice and give to God that which cost me nothing. And I am deeply humbled and cut to the heart because how many times did I bring something to God that cost me nothing? How little have I thought of the sacrifice of Jesus that when I have an opportunity to give back in thanks to what He's done, I'm like the widow only in the sense that I drop a few coins and act like it was a big deal. How many times have I prepared for worship? And, and my worship wasn't really prepared at all. And so now I'll say this. I'll challenge you as I've challenged myself. Have you ever allowed your worship to come at very little or no cost to yourself? And the question then has to be asked, is that really worship? When we were kids, it, I mean, it's it's how it worked. It was we didn't have a, a deep understanding of relationships uh, with God. All we knew was we had to go to church. You had to go to church. Like it wasn't like we're going to go there and we're gonna, you know we're going to talk about the the gift that you you know when you're five and six years old, right? Like it, it was just you will go to church. Had a few rules in the Crumb household when I was uh, growing up. Um, one of the rules was if you you didn't go to church, you didn't go to lunch afterwards. And I grew up in a family where we ate out usually once a week, uh, and that was on Sunday after church. And then we got to play after church. And man, one of my things, favorite things, is going up and uh, playing football on a Sunday afternoon. Uh, that was just one of my favorite things to do, or ride my bike around when I was younger than that. If you missed church, you didn't participate in anything else after that. Like, you just wave the white flag, it's gone. 
So that, that was a big deal. The second thing, in order to follow the theme of worship as suffering, we were never allowed to have food in the pew. Like that was like a huge no-no. And I can remember the few times that I got to go uh, sit with my friend Bo. Bo's family let them have food. Man, those were good days. When I, Can I go sit by Bo this Sunday? Because his mom let him have goldfish. And I just thought that was awesome. You know, we never had goldfish. The only thing that went by is a cracker that I was not allowed to touch. Like, you're going to go there and you're going to sit. And so, but the problem is, is that sometimes that just, that becomes your worship. At some point, you say, okay, worship is going to church. That's because we're taught growing up, we're going to go to worship, you're going to go sit there. And you're going to be quiet, you're going to do exactly what you're told. That's worship. And so some of that just kind of hangs on and as we get older and you think about worship, you think that worship and I think about worship is I'm sitting in a pew. I am sitting in a pew and I am devoting some of the 60 minutes that we're here to listening. Like I'm here and this is worship. And yet from 2 Samuel 24... David seems to be saying, no, just showing up isn't worship. It's not just being there. It should cost you something. Now, again, I'm, I'm not the one who gets to determine that. That is absolutely between you and God. In fact, I'm, I'm going to say that I have very little to do with your worship. I have very little to do with your worship. How did you worship this morning? That, that's between you and God. Now, you can walk, you can go to Dickie's and you can see your friends that worship at other churches and they may ask you, how was worship this morning? And what they're saying was, how long did the preacher go? Or how good was the singing? That's, that's not your worship. I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This is my worship. This is what I'm bringing before God. What is this costing me? This doesn't... This is not about you. And what I do is not about your worship. What are you willing to give this week for the Lord? Are you allotting time to give honor and glory to Him? Are you waking up and saying, God, today is your day. What do you want to do with me? How are you allowing your worship to be a way of giving back to Him? This is not just finances. In fact, finances is has something to do with it, but it's a, a different side altogether. What are you really offering to God? What does He get? Now, we're almost out of time. 
But I, I want to shift gears for just a second. As I was reading from Malcolm Gladwell several months ago, he said this, I thought that was really profound. He says, the more conviction you have for something, the more you're willing to sacrifice for it. Basically, what he says is, people believe in and love the things that they suffer for. So this happened um, several months ago. We have a little, I guess you could call it a flower bed in front of our house. Neither myself nor my wife are really have, have green thumbs um, a whole lot. I, in fact, uh, I've been known to kill nearly any plant and possibly even a fake one one time. It's, I'm not good with plants. And so we have this kind of flower bed thing that we have in front that has some flowers in it, it has several bushes, most of which literally I've had to pull out because somehow I managed to kill them. I don't know how I do it, but I've done it before. So I've always wanted to just fill that thing with rose bushes. And the reason why is I've never been able to kill a rose bush. Like they're just, they are so, they thrive uh, in this uh, uh, in this environment and they, they love the sun, and I just keep telling Jennifer, let's put in rose bushes. Let's put, she said, no, I just don't want a bunch of rose bushes. I don't know why. We, she should do it. That's what I'm going to give her for Mother's Day, I think. It's just a bunch of rose bushes. And so about two or three months ago, she decided she was going to go out there, and she was going to tackle that little flower bed. It's about two feet wide, and it's probably about 30 feet long. And she's literally on her hands and knees for hours pulling out all the weeds. That's how bad it gotten. I referred to the weeds as ground cover. <laughs> um, she said that, no, those are, I was like, no, they look good. She's like, no, there's there's dirt under there. You should be able to see that. And so she she starts pulling it and pulling it and pulling it. And I'm telling you, for months, we would years, we would drive up to the house and like we wouldn't even notice that. But after that happened, we would drive in and she would slow down and she would look at that flower bed and she'd be like, man, that's a good looking flower bed. And she began to really enjoy having a flower bed that had flowers and not ground cover or weeds. That was like something really special. And I kept thinking about that more and more. And I realized the reason why that, that flower bed became so special to her, because it came at a cost. Because she says, I'm going to invest into that flower bed. I'm going to put something in those hours of work that she spent on a Saturday. And those are sacred times because my wife is a super hard worker and you think, oh, she's a school teacher. She works eight to three. Like you would not believe the amount of hours that she spends grading papers afterwards. I mean, several hours every night, four or five hours on Saturday, and then again on Sunday. It's like she's always, and she had that opportunity. She could have just rested. Instead, she's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that flower bed. And then, and then every time she saw that, she, she loved and appreciated that. And I just wonder. What would happen if, if we treated our spirituality that way? In, in sacrificing, in suffering for our faith, does that not bring greater value to our spirituality? Just a, a couple days ago, Robert Sibley was in town. I don't know how many of you remember him. He was came up through uh, the, the youth group. Uh, he's related to... Um, Jackie and Brunel, um, he was our youth intern for several years. 
and he went off to college and then ended up moving to the big city and lives near Dallas. And a couple years ago, we, I was asking him uh, this last week about his, his church life and how it's going, and he started to describe his church. He says a couple years ago, he got involved in this uh, church, uh, and it's a big church. Uh, he says the auditorium probably holds several thousand, and it is a, it's a mega church. Uh, and so we talk, I said, well, what's it like to be a part of that? And he says, it's really interesting. He says, I, descri- uh, I, I joined this church. And he says, you can show up anytime you want. Like they have services literally all week long. They have, they have something going on every day of the week, right? He says, but if you want to join, uh, if you want to become a member, like there are some prerequisites. It's not like you kind of fill out a form and say, hey, I want to be a member. And they say, oh, and I've always been intrigued by this idea. Always been intrigued by it. I don't fully understand the idea of church membership. And I want to know, like, what are the, the privileges? What are the responsibilities? As far as I know, like, the, the big thing is, what's the one big thing for church membership? You get your picture in the directory. <laughs> like, that's the big, like, what is, you know, what does it really mean? Uh, and so we've had lots of conversation among the, the elders and the ministers. We've talked about, okay, what does that really look like? This is something interesting. Robert goes to this mega church, right? And you know they have to be saying, in order to get lots of people to come in, we have to make joining as easy as possible. Okay, because if, if you're going to make a lot of hurdles or hoops that they have to jump over or through, then people are going to walk away. And that's exact opposite of what this church does. They literally say, okay, if you, you, you want to come, you can come as much as you want. If you want to be a member, okay, you have to attend um, a new member's class. You have to, to, to join in, in one of their small groups, right? Uh, and you have to uh, commit to being a part of that, I think you said for maybe the first year. It's not like I'm just going to show up and start hanging out here and, and become a member. They says, oh, and then the other thing is you have to sign up uh, to volunteer for a ministry. If you want to be in that church, you got to volunteer. He says there's a lot of different ways. There's so many different ministries you can be a part of, but you have to do that. To be a member... It was going to cost you something. And so I want you to imagine you're one of the leaders of that mega church and you're sitting down and you're thinking, how can we get as many people in as possible? And someone suggests we should make it really difficult for people to join. We should make it cost something. Why would the leaders of that church do that? You have to invest in what you're doing. Does that sound logical? If you want to have more people show up, make it harder for them to get in? Do you you think it's working? Do what? It it was a, a large church in the area. What are we doing to our churches when visitors walk in and our plan is to make it as easy and comfortable as possible for them to join. What we're really saying is if you show up here, we'll do all the work and you can just sit there and you can enjoy it. 
And what happens once they become a member? What is their expectation? I don't have to do anything. And so let me ask this. I have an idea. I don't know if it's going to fly. I haven't mentioned it to the elders yet, so we, we may need to talk about this uh, in my future employment after I mention this. But I have an idea. I'm thinking maybe, maybe we should start selling tickets to church. What do you think? And I, I think... I think what we can do is we can identify some of the like the, the better seating places here and we can sell those as like season passes. Like you can get season to how would you like can you imagine if you walked up and somebody you said I went in and say, Well you need to buy a ticket. What? Oh, there we go. You can get your name on the view. I just I went to visit uh, ACU um a few weeks ago and like they name everything there literally was a foyer that was about like six feet by six feet and it was like the the herald s something uh foyer what's going on here because somebody paid so that's what i'm thinking i'm thinking that we should probably try something like this we can sell tickets okay You, you can have your name put on your pew that would stop a lot of fights, right? You can have your own. We can give you a foyer. You can be. You can sponsor your own little coffee hut, and you can provide the coffee for us, right? Eddie's parking only. Is that going to end up out front? How in the world did you have that, and why are you carrying it with you? Of course he would. Thorn in my flesh. Rusty Taylor. <laughs> so what, that would not that would that would cost you money. What would happen if you walked in up to a, a church building and somebody says it's gonna cost you to come in? All joking aside. Would you be more likely to show up if you knew that it cost you? If you had to pay, would you be like, well, I really hate to miss because I've already paid for it. But I want you to think about this. And again, I don't want us to think worship is only what happens in this building. But in our, our last 20 seconds, I just want you to think about this. I want you to think about what would you pay? What would you give? What would you offer to be able to walk in here and be surrounded by other people who love the Lord and say, I'm, I'm here to sing and to worship. Like, I, I'm willing to give. What would you be willing to offer? And at what point would you say, you know what, that is too much to pay to spend time in worship? My prayer is that this week you will find multiple opportunities in which you worship. But I want you to know that the best ones are going to cost. Be willing 
to pay that price so that God can be glorified. May he be praised through our worship, our suffering, and our sacrifice to him. Let's close out in prayer. Father God, I just I thank you again for reminding us through the story of David that we're not called to bring something to you that cost us nothing, but instead we are called to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because this is our spiritual act of worship. And so, Lord, I just pray in the same way that we will take those words from Paul to the church in Rome and that we can live those out in our life, that we can be renewed and transformed as we worship and sacrifice. And in, on some days, we even suffer for you. May we realize that our suffering is not lost on you, but may it be a sweet aroma lifted up to you as we continue to worship you this week. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thank you all for being here. We're going to see you on Wednesday at 6 o'clock.